You're listening to TIP. In this episode, I speak to three fan favorites of the Investors Podcast. John Huber from Sabre Capital Management, Tobias Kylile, Choirs Fund, and Dr. Wes Gray from Alpha Architect. All three of them are highly successful asset managers. We discuss value investing concepts that all investors should know, ranging from a deep understanding of risk to cyclicality, position sizing, and much more. So without further delay, here's our discussion with John Huber, Tobias Carlyle, and Wes Gray. You are listening to The Investor's Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected. Welcome to The Investor's Podcast. I'm your host, Dick Broderson, and I'm not here today with any of my co-hosts. However, I'm here with no less than three guests, and it's safe to say that we have a superior lineup for you. We have John Huber, Tobias Highline, and Wes Gray with us. Jens, thank you so much for making time to join the group here today. Thanks, Sig. Can't wait. Yeah, thank you, Sig. So I was speaking with John the other day, and he suggested that we tried out a different format here for the show. So instead of a typical interview-style episode, we would invite a group and talk about value investing concepts. And I absolutely love the idea. So you guys can think of this a bit more like a mastermind group meeting, but we won't be pitching particular stocks or find the intrinsic value of a stock. Rather, we'll be talking about our successes and failures, and most importantly, what we learned over the years in the market. And we have four main topics for today, and they are knowing what you don't know, cyclicality, risk, and advice to your younger self. I wanted to start off the first topic, knowing what you don't know, with a few quotes. The first is from John Kenneth Goldbright, who said, we have two classes of forecasters, those who don't know, and those who don't know that don't know. The next quote is from Henry Kaufman. He's saying that there are two kinds of people who lose money, those who know nothing and those who know everything. So with that bleak kind of kickoff, I wanted to kick it over to you guys. And perhaps, John, you could start out it's a really interesting topic, Stig. I, I think the way I think I would think about that question is to, I guess, first like accept the reality that the world is uncertain. So I think the implicit logic in your comment is that we we don't know the future, right? So the the way to the best defense against ignorance, I guess, or not not knowing the future is to when it, when you're thinking about investments is to position your portfolio in companies, at least the type of investing that, that I do, position your portfolio in companies that are, I think, best adaptable to change. So for me, I think the world... And I've talked about this... I think Toby and I talked about this on a podcast one time, but I've been thinking about this concept for a few years. I, I think the world is changing to a degree where the rate of change is much faster than it used to be in previous decades. And so companies... What that means is companies are changing much faster. And so I don't think you have companies that will be able to exist on these static competitive advantages that they enjoyed for decades. Companies like Procter & Gamble had shelf space advantage that they lived off of for, for years and years and years. And the nature of business now is that barriers to entry are so much lower. And so you have upstart companies in all different industries that are able to take on, you know, incumbents that would have been unthinkable 20 years ago. So I think you have a situation where the rate of change is faster, 
incumbent advantages are no longer in, in many, there are some exceptions, but incumbent advantages, I don't think are as strong as they used to, to be. And so you have to just come to grips with the reality that change is a constant. And so I think the best way to defend against that is to invest in companies that have the ability to change. And, and that means thinking about management teams that are adaptable, companies that can quickly shift. And I think those are the investments, those are the companies that'll be best positioned to, to fight against the unknown, which is the future. So that's, that's kind of my thought on that. That's very interesting, John. Thank you for, for sharing that. And you know, the, the issue I had with one of those quotes, you know, those two kinds of people lose money, those who know nothing and those who know everything. Whenever I think about guys who know everything, I think of, of you guys. I could say, you know, hey, talk to me about a really, really smart guy. And I would say, talk to Wes. If anyone, he would know his stuff. And not trying to paint you into a corner here, Wes. So how do you not know everything? I guess that, that's my question going into this. Well, I think the more you know, the more you kind of realize you don't know anything else. And so I kind of boiled this question down to what do I actually think I know? And just I'll assume I don't know anything else, right? That's a much easier question to ask than how do you know what you don't know? I'm just going to invert it and say, what, what do I think I actually know? And for me, I, I wrote down three notes here. The first one is that incentives matter. And to John's point, market's competitive. So I do think you know, no pain, no gain is a, is a pretty good mantra to live by in investing. And if, if you can't identify where there's pain to get your gains, you know, you're probably wrong or you, you probably don't know something that you don't know. So that, that's a good rule of thumb. And then the other one is I got another note here. It says humans matter. So sentiment matters, fear and greed do affect prices. And so that's just to say that, you know, market probably isn't perfectly efficient. And there are maniacs out there. I know that. The problem is I don't know how to time these, these maniacs. So got to be ready for being patient. And then the third one, which is kind of living too close to Vanguard, is that fees and taxes matter a lot because I can identify perfectly how much those are going to cost me. And so to the extent I can minimize those, that's really important, especially on the tax side where I think a lot of people forget that you know 50% Uncle Sam carried interest is the biggest fee you'll ever pay. So those are the things I know. Incentives matter, humans matter, and we should avoid fees and taxes. I don't know anything else beyond that. I think there was, a, there was a good way of responding to that question, Wes. So actually, let me follow up on the third point you said there about fees. You know, we are in a new environment right now. I, I don't know if I could say new normal. It's going to be such a cliche if I said that. It's just crazy what we're seeing right now. And we are all mm -hmm. paying taxes on nominal gains. We all like to look at nominal numbers, not real numbers. So knowing that, how do you think about fees and taxes now? What has changed given the low interest rate environment that we're in? The problem with being an asset manager in a world where expected returns on everything are really low is, is it's one thing to charge 1% when you have you know, fixed income or just brain dead money paying you 5 6%. Now that you literally have incentive to put your money in a pillow, because if you have a bond, that, a 10-year bond that pays 1%, well, half of that goes to taxes. You're down to 50 bips. Then you pay 50 bips in fee. You got zero with a lot of brain damage. Why did I even hire this person to do anything with my money? So that obviously extends a little bit into people that do more risk you know, like Toby, myself, and John, but, but even for us, that matters, right? Because, you know, maybe we had a high expect return of 
15, 20%. Now that all got chopped in half, like, you know, our fees, our, our infrastructure costs as a percentage of your potential gains are still relevant, but I feel really bad. And it's going to be very interesting to see how advisors, fixed income managers, and a lot of other people deal with this reality of why am I paying anyone in financial services anything right now? Because they're not going to deliver anything after all their costs and lack of transparency, liquidity constraints, et cetera. It's going to be a tough business going forward, I would say. Toby, you're looking at me right now like, oh my God, I feel the same pain as, as Wes. It's a tough world to be in and say, you know, I, I do know more than the market. Or what do you know? I know it's a, it sounds a bit provocative, but we're friends. So I, I guess I can, I can throw it over to you like that. The first time you confront the market, none of it makes any sense. And then you find some guys who've succeeded. And the way that I did it is I found Buffett and I found Graham. And so they're value guys. So what their idea is, there's a quantity that you can calculate that's different from the market price. And if you put together, you know, you look at the yield, you look at the rate of reinvestment in, in a stock that gives you a, a value for that stock, and you can reverse that process and get some expectations about it. So rather than working out what I think it's worth, just look at what the market thinks it's worth. And then I can ask, is that reasonable? And where there are instances where I think the market is so far wrong that it's worth sort of betting on the market being wrong. And, you know, I could take Wes's advice and say, well, are they wrong because there's, there's a lot of pain here? Are they wrong because the market just doesn't understand? Is there, you know, there are many events where in option pricing, for example, there are many events where there's some binary event going to occur and the, and the option is priced as if it's black shoals, which is assuming that all possible outcomes close to the central tendency are more likely, further away are less likely. I think that there are very small pockets of miscalculation in the market. And I do think that if you know a little bit, you can get comfortable with them. The risk that you run into in every single one of those is that you've missed something that the market knows more than you do. And so the way around that is just to diversify across enough positions so that if you're wrong in any given one, and you would hope that over time, you would generate a little bit more return potentially than the market, or at least your process is a little bit more sensible than the markets, which is just sizing into float adjusted market cap, which really that doesn't make a great deal of sense to me. As competitive as it is as an index to be, it really doesn't make a great deal of sense to sort of allocate money. So that's how I do it. I just kind of think about it. If I was a business guy sticking money into the market and I only regarded the stock market as sort of incidentally stock market investing that gave me these opportunities how would I approach the problem? I'd approach it like a business guy. I wouldn't really care what the index does. I'd try and come up with a valuation. I'd know that I'm probably going to be missing some stuff and wrong on some stuff. So I'll just size down my positions and try and hold a basket of them. I still think that over the very long term, that's a pretty good approach. So let's talk about having the right sizing in our portfolio. So right now I'm going through this amazing CNBC resource with Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. And it's all of the old books of Hathaway annual shareholders meeting back to 1994. And in the 2008 morning session, this gentleman asked Buffett and Munger, how aggressive can you build your positions in your portfolio given that you have a maximum conviction? And Buffett talked about how he multiple times had 70 to 75% of his net worth in one investment. Now, gents, what are your thoughts on that? Can we do that and should we do that knowing that we're not Warren Buffett? Is that a correct statement for Warren Buffett? That probably is a correct statement for Warren Buffett. Is that a correct statement for, for me? No way in the world is that correct for me. I would never size something up like that. There's a point where I don't have enough interest to keep on digging in. And I think that 
Buffett. Clearly, when you listen to Buffett talk, he's on a different level. There's no point in my timeline of development as an investor where I get to where Buffett has been at any stage. So I'm never going to size like Buffett does. I'm just going to keep them smaller. I think that you know, the, really the, the hardest thing about investing is just working out who you are. And as soon as you figure out who you are and you stop trying to do it like everybody else does it and just do it in a way that the only thing you have to do really to succeed is to stick with your conviction when something goes against you. And if you can do that, you're going to be okay. If you can't do that, then you're doing the wrong thing. It's too big. You've got the wrong method. Like, you know, Wes has got some momentum. does it quantitatively, but he's got some momentum just doesn't appeal to me as an investment style. So I just can't do it. If it goes against me, I just wouldn't be able to hold the position. And that's exactly when you need to be holding it. True of value. When it goes against you, you need to hold it. If you're confident in the underlying and you can hold it, you're going to do okay because that's when you get the that's when you get the better performance. So I wouldn't size like that, but I think it's appropriate for Buffett to do it. I would still say seventy percent pretty big for Buffett. If you're Buffett, but then again, he would probably say, "Well, I've got like ninety nine percent of my money in Berkshire, and that's one stock." When you think about slugging percentage, to use a baseball term, you know, I think regardless of the type of investment approach you use, you can have a very this thing about like George Soros has this quote where he says something to the effect of, or maybe it was Druckenmiller, which is obviously a completely different investment approach than I think any of us use, but said something like, you know, Soros is right 30% of the time, but he just wins so much more on the ones on those 30% hits. His winning, I guess the size of his wins are so much larger than the size of his losses. So he he can compensate for that. And that, that's really the same with Buffett. Buffett had a much higher batting average, but if you look at Buffett's performance over the last 50 years, you'll see that a large percentage of his gains, even, even after the partnership years into Berkshire, I mean, some of the biggest gains in Berkshire's book value have come from a relatively few uh, successful big investments, like Geico is one, Washington Post is one, Coca-Cola is one. So some of them were public securities, some of, some of them were wholly owned businesses, but that slugging percentage, it, it's the same. I think Buffett is the same, Soros, the VCs in Silicon Valley. That, that, that is, I think, a common denominator to a lot of successful approaches. And then in terms of sizing, I was, just gonna, I was thinking about what Wes said in taxes and the frictional costs that go along with investment management. And you, you have to think of it like a barbell. You have to have one of two extremes. You either have to be extremely diversified and do what I think Wes and Toby do more of, which is a quantitative approach. And you're looking for almost like an insurance style bet where you have, you're taking advantage of the law of large numbers. You have a large sample space and value investing works over time. And so if you have a large enough sample space, you can gain a small edge and you can replicate that over and over knowing that on average, low price to earnings, low price to book maybe, although that maybe isn't as relevant anymore, but a basket of value stocks will outperform over time. And then at the other extreme, it's more of the concentrated approach, which is just the approach that I feel more comfortable with because I'm picking stocks. I think you have to be very selective and very patient. And then you just have to wait for something that makes sense to you. And to Toby's point, you I've discovered this long ago. You can't invest like Buffett. You can't invest like Peter Lynch. You have to figure out your own style, your own circle of competence. And then you just have to wait for things that you understand. And once in a while, for me, it's very rarely, but once in a while, I understand something and then I, I can take a swing at it. And so I think you can improve, you can improve your hit rate by, by being overly patient and 
and uh, and just waiting for something that that shows up that makes sense to you. But I think it has to be one of those extremes. You either have to be very concentrated and very selective, or you have to run some sort of a diversified approach that has a proven edge over a large sample space. Anything in the middle is is just not going to work, especially when you layer on fees. Well said, John. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a data-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, homeowners earn on average 20% or more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa makes vacation home ownership easy. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home by doing less, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com. That's vacasa.com to get started on your dream of owning a vacation home. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously, and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like, what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. So guys, let's move to the second top here of today and talk about cyclicality. We did have the pleasure of speaking with Howard Marks about his book, Mastering the Market Cycle, here on the show. And he emphasized the two rules of cyclicality. Rule number one, most things will prove to be cyclical. And rule number two, some of the greatest opportunities for gains and losses come when other people forget about rule number one. So starting with you, Wes, how have you made or lost money in the market because of neglecting um, or perhaps from having a deep understanding of cyclicality? I would first question the premise a little bit in the sense that 
you know, you're going to have a lot of survivor bias and claiming their cycles because that implies something came back. But what about like all the other things that literally went to zero and blew up and you don't read about anymore, right? So cycles clearly didn't work there. But, you know, if you're a survivor, cycles are always going to be amazing because just keep buying the U.S. equity market, you know, you're a right. genius. You get earn the 7 8% equity return premium. But, you know, go ask all the other countries where on average you earn like 2% and you, you know, get your face ripped off most of the time. So I would say I just question the premise of that in the first place. And then obviously all my wins go exactly in line with what he's talking about in the value realm where you buy something that's totally out of favor, total piece of junk, and it makes money. But who cares about that? I would say the cycles that I screwed up the most are actually the opposite of that, momentum cycles, where I can think of three examples of recent memory. One is in real estate. So my my brother lives in Eagle, Colorado, where I grew up. It's in the mountains. And probably 2012, we had all these opportunities to buy, you know, different real estate properties out there. But of course, being value cheap bastard, we're like, nah, it's too high, man. Don't want to get in. Of course, you know, we didn't realize that's a momentum trade. And, you know, it's only quadrupled with leverage and we'd be millionaires right now. And of course, most recently here, March 2020, me being a genius, I'm like, ah, this is the greatest time ever to buy value. I'm going to do that. And yeah, that kind of worked. But guess what? Should have bought momentum because it would have worked 10 times better, right? So for me, all the cycles that I look back that I missed, uh, everyone always, value guys always talk about cycles and then point to value wins, but they're not highlighting that the big wins are the momentum cycles that we all miss. I think that's an important thing for kind of value people to think about it is momentum cycles, not mean reversion cycles. What do you guys think? Yeah. I mean, I think that's a great point, Wes. When you think about like that real estate example you used in Colorado, you know, that local market might have been at some inflection point where the true value was dramatically understated for whatever reason. And uh, whether it's people moving to the area or, you know, home prices are appreciating or whatever, whatever it was. But you know, I think about like Google as an example in the stock market. You could you could look back and and I think Google did twenty billion in revenue in two thousand eight when the last real lengthy recession occurred before this past one. But you know the advertising market that year contracted ten percent. Google's revenue slowed. Uh, it was growing at fifty percent before the recession. It still grew through that period. I think their revenue grew. Eight or ten percent in two thousand nine, which was a significant advertising downturn, and it was just the fact that Google was such a small piece of the advertising pie at that point. They had twenty one billion in revenue or something. The advertising market was four hundred billion, so they had a five percent share of a of a big market, and they had a value proposition that was very clear cut, and it was clear that they were going to be much much bigger. And so, you know, those are those are businesses that are able to withstand the cyclical nature of the economy. And I think all businesses are cyclical to a certain extent, some, some more than others. But the other way to think about cyclical businesses or the risk that you're talking about, the risk of investing in something that's cyclical is to think about how, think about the business itself within that industry. So I'll use home building as an example. Most home build, all home builders are cyclical because the nature of Real estate is cyclical. And so that 
implies some some sort of risk to a typical home builder because most home builders have an enormous amount of inventory on their books and what happens in a downturn is home price uh home sales slow land prices often decline and so home builders are left with a huge amount of inventory on their on their balance sheets that have to be marked down and a lot of that inventory is financed with debt and so the balance sheets are often very risky but within that industry there's a company called NVR and I've spoken about this company before and it's a it's a stock that my fund owns but it's it's a it's a very cyclical business just like all the other home builders but with one key difference and that's that's that the, the balance sheet is much lighter they carry far less inventory than most of the other home builders and so what that means is their inventory turnover is much faster they have about 1.5 billion in inventory and they turn that inventory about every two and a half months. Uh, Lennar is the biggest builder in the country. They did about 22 billion in revenue last year. They have 18 billion in inventory and they turn that inventory about once every year. So NVR is turning its inventory five times faster. Lennar did about 3 billion in profits on 18 billion in inventory and and um, NVR did a billion in profits on three on 1.5 billion in inventory. So basically, what that's telling you is NVR's return on capital is about five times higher. And so it's just a better business is another way of saying it. But it's it's got a variable cost structure and it's much less risky when the downturn comes. They they tie up their land using options, which is how that's how they're able to do it. They don't put as much capital into the ground. They put a down payment on the on the land, and if trouble comes, then they're able to walk away and, and just lose the option premium, just like a, just like a call option on a stock. John, just uh, push back, because I was talking about more like sentiment cycles. Mm-hmm. I mean, arguably, these guys are positioned extremely poorly for a sentiment cycle they may be missing, right? Because wouldn't you want to own the, like, the super operating leverage, maxed out, whoop it on, home builder versus the nimble low inventory, you know, super yeah. fit one. Because if you can borrow for negative rates and there's a sentiment cycle, like I would argue you, you actually are hey, taking a huge cycle risk betting against sentiment, the sentiment cycle by not buying the other one you mentioned. That's the problem. Yeah, exactly. And so the problem for most builders is they can't get away from exactly the the situation you're talking about. So it's two things. One is the inflation in land prices that happens over time. So in theory, you're much better off owning land if land prices are appreciating at 2% a year because the nature of your slow turnover, the one benefit of slow turnover is that land as it's on your books is going to be worth more when it leaves your books than, than the price that you paid for it a year ago. So that is true. The problem is, and again, this is why builders can't seem to replicate NVR's model. The problem is, one of it is incentives. All the builders, if you read the proxy statements, they're almost all the management teams are incentivized to produce absolute profits. And so the best way to produce absolute profits, not necessarily return on capital, just make more money. The easiest way to do that, just like Buffett says, the easiest way to make a savings account earn more money is just add more money to the savings account. So builders are incentivized to just go out and buy more land, regardless of the returns that they can generate on that land, because they'll know that if they can, even if they earn 15% gross margins instead of 20, they're going to be compensated for that at the end of the year because you know they can use other people's money, the bank's money to go out and buy more land. So 
it's the inflation aspect of it and the incentive structure makes it very difficult for any other builder to copy NVR. But you're exactly right that NVR is on the losing end of it in an inflationary environment or in a big boom. And we're sort of experiencing that right now in housing, which housing is in a boom right now. Part of it's COVID fueled and part of it, I mean, the housing market's been in a bull market for a number of years now. But yes, NVR earns smaller profits relative to what it could if it put the land on its balance sheet. But the benefit is when the next downturn comes and it's inevitable in housing, uh, NVR is just going to be much safer. They're, they're much better positioned to survive any sort of downturn. And most of these builders are going to be fine. They're going to survive fine. A lot of the builders have tried to slowly try to work towards a more asset light model. Uh, but again, they, none of them have been able to replicate what NVR has in terms, terms of returns on capital. But they're all trying to go that direction to de-risk their balance sheets. It's just a slight philosophical difference, right? There's, there's one approach where, to investing where you say, I'm going to try and maximize the amount of return that I can take per unit of risk that I take, which like, is, I think there's only two sort of sensible ways of doing this. I'm going to maximize the amount of return I can take per amount of risk that I can take, or I'm going to try to not take any risk at all. And I, I know that I'm not, there's no way in the world you're investing in the markets at all, not taking any risk. I'm going to look for situations where there is some return still available there. And I'm going to try and only hit on those things. I think John's sort of more in that. He'd just rather not take any of the known risks that if there's a way that you can lose money, it's just not going to do it. You have to be careful because like we said at the top of this call, you know, knowing what you don't know, there's, there's all kinds of uncertainty out there. But I do believe that when you think about surprises, it just seems in my, this is just an empirical observation. I don't have data on this, but good surprises tend to happen more often to good companies and bad surprises just tend to happen more often to bad companies. And so I'm not in the game of trying to predict these cycles. I understand that business is cyclical. And so for me, I just kind of, I think Charlie Munger has this quote, you know, sometimes it ties with you, sometimes it's against you. And we just focused on trying to keep swimming forward. And that's kind of my view on it is sometimes the wind's going to be at my back and sometimes it's going to be a headwind. But I'm going to try to focus on investing in companies for the long run that I think, you know, have staying power and that are good businesses that I, I have a, a feeling that earning power is going to be higher in five years than it is now, for example. I want to invest in those types of companies versus the, the real cyclical companies that have a huge amount of risk and much more volatility to their business. So I tend to avoid those, those types of companies. It's not that you're not taking risk because all companies have, have certain amounts of risk and things can change, which goes to my point earlier on, you want to invest in companies that are adaptable to change. Uh, Stig and I talked about Facebook once. I mean, that's a company that I think has proven its ability to adapt to changing environments. That's a business that's very difficult to predict 10 years out. It's hard to know what that world is going to look like in 10 years. But the management team to this point, and this is not guaranteed, you know, there's no guarantee that this will be the case forever. But to this point, I think they've done a good job at shifting and recognizing business risks that they faced as opposed to just putting their head in the sand and, and ignoring it. I think they've been very genuine about their desire to fix issues. I think they've, been, they've had a lot of foresight in risk that their businesses face and maybe is facing right now. And they've, they've adapted to those changes. So that's the other thing to think about is you want to, again, for my style of stock picking, I, I want to invest in companies that I think can adapt to those changes and can you know, have some sort of staying power through these cycles that will inevitably occur from time to time. 
So I think that's a great segue into the third topic here of today, which is all about risk. So typically, whenever value investors talk about risk, they often refer to Warren Buffett's comments on you know, risk being a permanent loss of capital. That's one. And the second one would be opportunity cost of not being invested in the best investment at the time. And Howard Marks makes the obvious but yet profound observation that viewing risk as you know, higher risk implies high return is just wrong by default. I mean, if a return is certain, it's by definition not risky. So kicking back over to you, Toby, how do you define risk and, and how is that reflected in your own portfolio and investment strategy? I subscribe to the Buffett definition of risk that you've got. The risk is that you lose such a material amount of money that you can't recover from it. That's the risk of ruin and not so much the volatility on the path to getting there. I didn't answer the last question, but I, I would have just said the big cycle that has hurt me in particular was partly too by virtue of the fact that he's got some value funds out there. It's just been, this has been an extraordinarily long, bad run for value. And there's, you know, Mikhail Samanov, who runs two centuries, he's got that research that stitches together three data sets, including the Cows Commission and the, fam- the French data with, uh, with this other sort of crazy thing where they've gone and looked at annual reports from like 1825 onwards looking at dividend yields plus Cal's commission, which was price to book, plus French data, which is price to book and other things. It's the longest, worst down cycle for value in 200 years. So that's, that's been difficult to, to sort of invest through, particularly because it would have been so much easier just to go and pick a sexy tech company and let it run. And you know, I, I can see which ones are like, they're very good businesses there. I just think they're very expensive in many instances. And if I didn't care about risk, no, I was only trying to capture the return. I just go and load up on those things. And I would make me feel good for several years until it gets to the end of the cycle. And then it would feel terrible. And it would be like a betrayal of my own code. So I couldn't possibly do it. But it would take away the pain in the interim. So the risk, that's the way I define risk. Like I, I just don't want to get, there's two things. One of them is I don't want to invest in something that I think is massively overvalued because I think that at some point it's going to meet its value. And I also don't want to, I want to follow the rules that I've established because I I know that those rules will keep me safe. So part of it is the sort of intellectual, psychological part. Like if I keep on following the rules, then I haven't betrayed the code. And at some point when it comes back, then assuming that it does, if it doesn't, then I won't be on the next one of these next year. It'll be somebody (laughs) else. I think you bring up a good point, Toby. I mean, you have to be true to yourself and you probably couldn't sleep at night if you loaded up on those tech companies. And you know, then there are other investors that probably can't sleep at night if they don't have tech companies in their portfolio. Uh, so, Yeah, that's fair. Right. I'm so, not talking about Facebook in there, by the way. I don't want, to be, I don't want that to sound like I just came straight on, on John's heels criticism. Because I think that those big old Fangy, that, like the Fang or whatever, they, whatever the current thing is like. So funnily enough, I think they're reasonably, they're not egregious, those companies. Like I can see how people are buying them here. It's the, it's the, the other stuff in the middle that's not yet proven that has the big hockey stick in the revenue line and then the hockey stick magnified in the price line that are the ones that I'm kind of talking about here. If you're a Momo guy, you might be, you might be riding those and you might know when to get off. So can't be too critical. Yeah, that's a really good point, Toby. And when talking about risk, I would say that personally, with the amount of money printing that we see right now, I found it very risky to hold cash, partly due to opportunity costs due to asset classes competing with each other but also partly due to inflation concerns. But let me throw it over to you, Wes. How do you define risk and how is that reflected in your portfolio? Uh, I think Toby did a good job 
saying that basically the main risk to any portfolio is really behavioral uh, in some sense, because obviously there's always fundamental risk where if you buy something that has a high chance of cash flow destruction, well, that's kind of more well understood, I think. But it's this behavioral stuff that kills people. So it's like either FOMO, like you're saying, like, God, I have cash and I should have bought Tesla. And then you may go take an action that, you know, <laughs> ends up putting me in the wrong place. Then there's chasing returns. And so the solution to that risk is to form a religion. But the problem with the religion is now you get a lot of conviction. So I'm now of the stance that we should believe in multiple religions and be religious about that. Because that seems to be the only reasonable solution to solving the behavioral problem. That's kind of my, my latest stance and theory on the, the situation. Yeah. Well said, Wes. You know, I, I remember once thinking, it's definitely my religion that I should always have bonds. And, and to be fair, you would have made a killing in long-term bonds for this cycle. That's mm-hmm. not what I'm saying, but I don't know how many good arguments I can find for buying you know, a 30-year bond, giving me a negative interest rate or whatnot, or close to at least here in Europe. John, let me throw it over to you. How do you see risk? Yeah, I, I think, uh, first of all, I agree with Wes's point. I, I don't think you can be dogmatic about anything in investing. And so my view on risk is really simple. It's just the risk of losing money is how I think about it. And it's, um, I don't think about volatility. I don't worry about volatility. I define risk as the chance that I make a wrong decision or, or that you can think about risk in the portfolio or you can think about business risk. And we talked about you know, some specific companies that I was talking about before. I think I, I look at risk when I'm thinking about investments by trying to analyze the risks of change or the, the risk that the business I'm looking at might suffer some catastrophic change to their future free cash flow. And, and therefore, the intrinsic value of that asset would be significantly changed. So yeah, that's how I think about risk. I think most investors would benefit from worrying less about sentiment shifts, less about uh, volatility, less about what's working right now or what's not working right now, and just think about individual companies and think about the risk to those businesses. And, and just think more, just like Buffett says, I think thinking like a businessman, thinking like a part owner of whatever company that you're going to buy stock in is the best way to think about investing. And then that will lead you to think critically about the business itself, not just the price you're going to pay, but the risk, like I said, the risk to the business what might cause it, what might cause a change in that business, what other companies could attack this business's competitive advantage if it has one, things like that. I'll just add one uh, thing, just because I understand what John's saying explicitly, is there is a risk that the market doesn't agree with you at some level. Like you need, unfortunately, as a value investor, there's an assumption that gravity matters and that fundamentals, you know, wag the, the market tail. But it could be the case that actually that doesn't. And what drives fundamentals is actually prices. Go talk to some like great, fundamental, amazing business with huge return on capital, but the guy who's been running or gal for 30 years and his cost capital is going to probably be 10 times more than Tesla. So you tell me what matters, the momentum or the fundamentals. And it gets confusing when you start really thinking about it too much, which is what I unfortunately have been doing. So I, I, like I said, I like value. It's a great religion, but I also like momentum as a great religion too. And I just believe in both of them now. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. 
Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in over 20 strategic locations. They have extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T dot com. Corient dot com. As someone who's constantly on the road and traveling, Briggs & Riley has been a game changer that ensures my travel experience is phenomenal. I'm a satisfied customer of Briggs & Riley myself, and I can certainly tell you that their luggage performs. It's extremely durable, it has amazing features that make packing and getting around easier, and they have the best lifetime guarantee in the industry. If your bag is ever broken or damaged, they'll repair it free of charge, no questions asked, even if your airline damages the bag. They also just released their Simpatico collection of hard-sided luggage. It has this new one-touch feature, which allows you to expand your luggage, pack it, then compress it to its original size so a carry-on can still fit in the overhead compartment, plus many other cool features. If you want luggage that was awarded the best carry-on by Forbes, then now's the time to get it. Get your new and improved luggage at Briggs-Riley.com. That's Briggs-Riley.com. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at AmericanExpress.com slash businessgoldcard. All right, back to the show. I've spent a little bit of time, like, because values work so badly for so long, I've spent a lot of time thinking about, like, what are the drivers of value? And I think that the more I've sort of spent time thinking about it, the more I think that Buffett is right, that when you buy something, you lock in a return and you get the yield and you get the underlying growth. And it really then doesn't matter how the market treats it in the interim. I mean, you got, that's not entirely true. If you're managing money, you've got other considerations. Then you've got this sort of asset liability issue where you do have to perform. Otherwise, you lose your, you lose your assets. So it's not, not necessarily applicable to professional investors. This is more for individual investors. You really have locked in the return that you get in the market. Now, one of the risks to that is that you have a competitor who's not economically rational or who the market treats in a not economically rational way. And so this is a specific Tesla point. Musk's cost of capital is virtually zero, and he's competing with guys who have expensive costs of capital. And so that makes that a different dynamic. But I think that's an unusual dynamic too. Most of the time, what it is, is the business is the kind of businesses that you want to find are the ones that are are competitively advantaged, that are going to sort of chug along regardless of what everybody else does. And then if you buy those and you get the purchase price right, it doesn't matter if they spend the next five years trading at a discount to value. If anything, that's the best thing that can possibly happen to you. If you're right and you're confident that you got the valuation right, you just keep on buying. And then, you know, I know guys who 
I know the son of a guy who, and he's, his son is a little bit older than me, so the, the father who did this buying, he worked in not a particularly well-paying job, but he worked out that there was this brewery in Australia. It was just perpetually cheap and it was a safe investment that was going to be around forever. He just put all of his money in this brewery and they're an incredibly wealthy family by virtue of the fact that they bought one stock and kept on buying it and it was mostly pretty cheap for most of its life. So it can work and it's not necessarily, you know, at no point did he really get the great stock price performance. If anything, he benefited from the lower prices from the discount. Yeah, because in the end, if you believe intrinsic value, if you believe stock prices correspond to intrinsic value over the long run, then which, which I believe, and sometimes that can take quite some time longer than we might like, but over the long run, I do think those two things converge. So, so the price will meet the intrinsic value. Uh, either intrinsic value will come down to the price or the price will come up to the intrinsic value. If you're truly trying to estimate Tesla's intrinsic value, you would spend a lot of time thinking about how likely it is that Elon Musk's salesmanship is going to continue to allow him to keep that cost of capital long enough to where Tesla can actually start producing free cash flow. And so I think the, bear, the bearish arguments on Tesla for so long have been, well, that's not going to happen. The business is not profitable. It's going to run out of cash. They won't be able to access the capital markets in a downturn. And that probably would have been true if, if that would have happened. If, if, if they wouldn't have been able to access cash at certain periods of time, they, they might not have made it. But they were able to make it. So I think in that case, it's such a unique situation. It's, you know, Thomas Edison in 1880, I think, got JP Morgan to finance his operation. And JP Morgan had his house wired, uh, his, his own primary residence. And the thing burned to the ground, or it didn't burn to the ground, but it started on fire. And he didn't even lose faith after, after the electrician came <laughs> in. I guess the electrician was so, so scared. JP Morgan, because he was such an intimidating figure, you know, he, he stayed up all night the night before he was going to go back and meet with him. And, and he thought he was going to get fired, lose his job and who knows what else. And Morgan told him, hey, do it again, rewire it. And so he rewired it. And uh, Edison kept his access to, to Morgan's capital and the rest is history. So it's a different type of investing again, but sometimes you have to factor in those types of reflex, uh, I guess I'll call them reflexive components to the intrinsic value because those can, in fact, influence the future free cash flow generation. But for me, in the end, the value of any asset is the amount of future cash that it will produce. Uh, and that end can be a long time into the future, but at some point, the market will come around to the price. All right, guys. I think it's time to go to the fourth and last point here of today's discussion. And the topic is advice to your younger self. And the three of you all accomplished investors, you paid your dues making, I want to say plenty of mistakes. I don't know if I'm getting ahead of myself whenever I say that, but most investors who are with a long track are also made mistakes and you also calibrated your strategy accordingly. So knowing that, which type of advice would you give to your younger self when forming your investment strategy? And I was just about to say something goofy about not buying value stocks. And because I said that going into it, I think that Toby should have the first go. Yeah, I think that's a fair... Look, I, I haven't had any of the success yet, so I, I, won't, I don't really feel like I can go back and say, give the younger self some advice. <laughs> the advice that I would give to my younger self is figure out how to value growth properly. And then uh, I think you'll do a little bit better rather than being so wedded to value. I think that the mistake that I have made has been trying to not pay for growth, trying to get growth for free. But I think that there are instances where 
being better able to value growth would have led to better returns and probably does work out for the best over the very long run. If you, So I think that that would be the advice that I would give to my younger self. And actually, I'm going to try and take that advice as my younger self now, because I've, I, hopefully I've still got another several four or five decades left on the planet. I can still correct that error. Uh, yeah, I was kind of echo Toby's point. I have a note here. If I was going to give advice to my younger self, I would just say experiment heavily in hopes that you have a wide bell curve outcomes and mainly so you can get humility and, and stop being so conviction oriented in your decision making. Because it seems to me like overconfidence is the number one driver of great results, but more often than not results that you didn't understand why you got them. John. I guess for me, uh, yeah, getting trying to focus on getting better every day. So trying to learn something new every day has been some of the best advice that I've received over the years. And so that's something that I'm not just telling my younger self, I'm trying to do that now, always trying to improve at this game and always trying to be open-minded. I, I think investing, and this goes to Wes's a, a point Wes made a few minutes ago, but not being dogmatic about something. I don't think, I don't think you can clone another investor. I don't think you can be, like I said before, you, you know, no one's going to be Warren Buffett. You can't be Peter Lynch. Every, every investor has their own unique set of understanding, their, their own lens through which they view the world. And I think, I think just the way we're wired as humans, we're going to all view things slightly differently. And so we're all going to be, we're all going to have to find our own way in business or in life in general, but certainly in investing, um, there's no one way to skin the cat. And so I think that's really helpful to keep in mind is to, to be open-minded and to be willing to learn new things and, and to to not get, you know, not sort of get stuck or, or to be dogmatic about certain, certain things uh, when it comes to investing. Because I think there's a lot of that. For some reason, there's a lot of that in the investing world. And then for me, I think that the most critical thing that I've learned, and, and again, this is, uh, I still consider this to be quite early, hopefully, in my career. Just like Toby said, hopefully there's a long runway ahead for all of us. But I, I think my empirical observation has been that the best investments in the stock market over time come from the best companies. And so if you're trying to be a long-term investor, if you're truly thinking of yourself as a part owner in a business, you want to own quality businesses that can, can compound value over the long run, especially when you factor in things like taxes and other frictional costs that go along with turnover. If you're a long-term investor, you want to own good companies. I had an intern this summer who put together a list of the top performing stocks over the last 15 years. And I chose 2005 because I wanted to see you know, sort of the middle of the last cycle. You see a lot of things like what, what's the best uh, performing stocks in this bull market? And that will, as we were talking about earlier, that's going to catch a lot of these survivors that just didn't barely hung on, did not go bankrupt, but survived. And you're going to see a bunch of those types of winners if you start in 2009 or 2010. But in 2005, it's sort of like the middle of the last cycle. And when you look at that list of the top 100 performers, they're all really high quality companies that have you know survived over now two different recessionary periods. And so if you're a long-term investor, if you're thinking of sort of the coffee can approach to investing, which is sort of how I think about investing, then you want to own quality companies. And so my mistakes have always come from when I've, when I, when I've purchased a stock that looked very cheap. On the surface, but in reality, you know, it might have been ten times earnings, but it might have only been worth seven times earnings. So I've made that mistake numerous times. And conversely, some of the some of the best investments I've made 
And, and this is something that is not just 2020. 2020 is sort of in vogue when it comes to this because there's so much momentum. But where I was very convicted on the business, but other investors questioned, I guess, the, the valuation at that time. And so some of those, some of those investments have turned out to, to work very well. And so I think a business is not worth what it earned last year. It's what it's going to earn over the course of the life of that business. And so I think that's, that's something to keep in mind as well. So just buy good businesses. Obviously, you have to pay, pay a price that is discounted in order to, to achieve alpha in the stock market. But I think focusing on quality companies is, in my experience, uh, the better approach. I think far more investment mistakes are made from picking the wrong business than paying too much for a great business. And you can make mistakes in both those categories, but I think the more catastrophic mistakes are from selecting the wrong business. Yeah, that, that's definitely true. I mean, if I could give advice to, to a younger self, it would be listen more to Toby. I always you know, take up the two examples of, of buying GameStop and, and Beth Bath Beyond. We have that on record. And both times, Toby said, don't do it. And here are all the reasons why. And, and both times, I didn't listen. And, and look what Did happened. Did they work out? Didn't they work really well? No, I, no they, yeah. really, they really didn't. I definitely called them at the wrong time. So we had you on there with Jesse Felder. And he made a fortune in Beth Bath Beyond because he's much smarter than me. So I bought it on the way down. Apparently, I, I misunderstood Wes's momentum strategy, so I bought it on the way down. <laughs> Jesse bought it on the way up, lo and behold. So he absolutely made a killing in that. So I just wanted to, to say that. If I can give my two cents to really a, a younger self and not just a few years back and you know, listen to Toby, if I could give my, myself another advice, it would probably be to... Buffett said that he bought his first stock at age 11, and that you know, up to that age, he was just wasting his time. I, <laughs> I kind of like that quote. Because your Buffett talks about being a learning machine, and that's definitely something that I haven't practiced, definitely not since 11, that's for sure. But I always understood the intention of you know, compound interest and you know, why we need to accumulate capital, then investing that. But I never really understood the concept of compounding knowledge before I got into my mid or late 20s. And I think that's one of the things I would like to change. And, and the other thing, and this is just something I'd like to convey to our listeners too, is really to, to read more. I think one of the mistakes that, that I've made as an investor is, you know, I, I speak to people and they're, they're smart people. They're not necessarily as smart as you. But whenever you primarily speak to people, especially if you're not too selective, they tell you things you already know, or they talk to you about things you don't, you're not interested in, or you don't understand. They're speaking too fast. They're speaking too slow. Reading is just, you get it in just the right tempo and you get just what you're interested in. And it's a lifetime of knowledge put into 200 pages or whatnot. That I haven't done that before is just, I don't know, I definitely wasted my time until then. Guys, it's been unbelievable talking to you about, you know, not just these topics, but really having the chance to have the conversation go in any type of, of direction that, uh, that we want. Before we let you go, we would definitely like to give you the opportunity to tell the audience where they can learn more about you and your companies. Wes, can we start with you? Alphaarchitect.com. And just follow the blog and you can hit us on Twitter as well at, uh, at Alphaarchitect. John? Yeah, my firm is called Sabre Capital and you can find the website at sabercapitalmgt.com and I have a, a lot of the archives up there, publish a number of blog posts and so you can follow me there and you can find me on Twitter as well. Toby? Yeah, I've got uh, acquirersfunds.com, acquirersmultiple.com. We've got the interview with John is up at the moment because it's one of the most popular podcasts of the year. All that name recognition he got from how the- is that? Uh, how, how did that happen? <laughs> <laughs> nice work, John. 
that's uh, that's the best way to get in contact with me or, or through Twitter. I'm Greenback. It's a funny spelling. G-R-E-E-N-B-A-C-K-D. I spend too much time there. Amazing. Guys, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to, to join the Ambassadors podcast here today. I really hope we can do it again. Thank you so much. Likewise. That was fun. Thanks, Dig. All right. That was all that I had for you for this week's episode of the Ambassadors podcast. Trey and I will be back next weekend with an interview with Lawrence Cunningham. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.